You can turn to John 8, and that's where we'll be today as we look at this text. And as you're turning, I want to encourage uh, the children there. If you were in Sunday school, you received a little booklet for the first time, and this will be a weekly thing. It's called New Kids in the Pew. And this is filled with activities that go along with our messages, okay? And instructions. And and may I go over these instructions just for a moment? These would be good for everybody. This Pinkston is so creative. One, go to the restroom before going to big church. (laughs) You're a little late this week, adults, if you didn't do that. But you can do it next week. And they're downstairs, just down the steps. If you'll go to the dead end and turn right, they'll be right in front of you. You can go to the bathroom. Secondly, sit quietly on the pew. No laying down or sitting on the floor. Okay? So, kids, would you help your mom and dad to stay awake, to sit up straight? Three, don't put your feet on the back of the pew in front of you. Four, don't talk or whisper. Talking and whispering disturbs people sitting around you. What this does not mean is that you can't say amen. Praise God. I believe. God, uh, pray out loud even if I'm praying, if you you feel led to. But don't just gossip or talk in the pew. Stand when adults stand. Try. Try not to go to sleep. That's important. Not for the kids, for the adults. Listen with your ears to the pastor. And you can listen to these words. Love, God, heaven, Jesus. Listen for those words, children. And I want to add one for you. I want you to listen this morning as I talk to you about sin. Okay? And so, children, if you have your book, you can add that. Sin. And there's other activities here. This is an attempt to help our children focus on the worship of the Word. These activities go with the worship of the Word, through the Word. These are not just crossword puzzles to entertain or pictures to color. Now, they're asked to draw a picture to to be examples of my sermon, and we may display them at some point. But this is not just doodle time. Children, you, if you're in this service, children, listen. You can listen to the pastor. You can learn from God's Word. And God can and does speak to you. He does. He spoke to Samuel. And he was not much older than you are. Okay? So God wants to speak to you children. And He wants to speak to you adults. So let's all listen to God as He speaks through His Word. In John chapter 8, we're right here at the end of the chapter almost, and we're moving to the close of this exchange of Christ between Him and the Pharisees around the tabernacle, uh, the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. I want to preach a message to you about Christ is the only escape from your sin. He's the only way of escape. There's no other way. As we've been looking at John 8 we've, and John 7, we've seen Jesus deal with the, uh, with the fact that He is the living water. 
He is the living water. The Spirit of Christ is the living water which when it's inside of us will bubble over, will flow out of us in our lives. He says, I'm the light of the world. And we talked about that last week. And the way that He drew off of that Old Testament symbol to say, not only are you, have you been lighting these torches to illuminate the courtyard and celebrate the light of the world, but I am the light of the world. I'm with you. You don't need these torches any longer in the temple. I am the light of the world. And if you believe in Christ, He says you will never walk in darkness again. You'll walk in the light as He is in the light. What a beautiful promise from the Lord. We dealt with that last week. And this week I want to come back and deal with verses 19 through 30. I want to catch that verse 19 because it begins a series of three questions the the leaders, the religious leaders ask Christ. Look at the questions in verse 19. Where is your father? Then again in verse 22, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going you cannot come? And then a third question, who are you? I want to deal with these three questions. I want to deal with this section looking at the fact that Christ is the only way you can be delivered from your sin. He's the only way of escape. First of all, you should not question the deity of Christ. There's some questions that are good to ask, and there's others that should be left alone. And to some of you believers, I would say you need to leave the question of His deity alone. You need to accept it by faith. It cannot be reasoned out. Now, it's not wrong to ask questions. It's wrong to question the deity. Do you understand the difference of what I'm saying? When you read your Bible, you ought to ask questions. When I preach, you ought to ask questions. When your mom and dad tell you something, you should ask questions, not just simply parrot what they want you to parrot. Believe what they want you to believe. You should have ownership over your faith. And you do that by asking questions, seeking answers in the Bible, and then you own your faith, right? But you should never, ever question the authority of Christ and His deity. Not ever. Question it in the sense of doubt it. Jesus Christ is God. Let there be no mistake. Jesus Christ is God. We shouldn't question that. But the, but the Pharisees, the religious leader, being the self-righteous men that they are, have no questions, no problems asking such questions, no problems doubting such truth and fact. And some of you are just like them. In your self-righteousness, you would dare to call into question whether Jesus is who He says He is. He is the Christ. He is God in flesh. Look at the question they ask. The Pharisees are questioning the nature of Jesus' conception in verse 19. Who is your father? Now, you might read that as they don't know who Joseph is. That'd be kind of foolish though, wouldn't it? They knew who Joseph was. Remember earlier in conversation they've already said, isn't this the one that was born in Nazareth, the son of Joseph? They know who Joseph is. They're not asking about Joseph. They're saying, who is your father? Notice the contrast. It, I want you to skip over to verse 41. They said to him, these same men, we were not born of sexual immorality. We, we have one father, even God. 
these men would dare to say that Jesus was born through sexual misconduct. They're calling in the nature of His conception. They're calling in the question by questioning His conception. They're questioning whether He's God or not. Now, it wouldn't be foreign to think this, would it? Because Joseph thought that. In Matthew 1.19, the Bible says he was betrothed to Mary and he sought to divorce her, to give her a certificate of divorce, which, by the way, you had to do in their day. Engagement in their day was much more in-depth than in our day. Everything was joined together already in the betrothal in preparation for the marriage. All that was left was the stating of the vows publicly and the coming together physically of the couple. They had the same finances, the same house. They had the same plot and lot in life. They had already set their direction. They were an item. Everything except sexual intercourse had occurred for them in their day. And so Joseph, when he finds out that Mary was with child, knowing that he had not been with her, sought to put her away in divorce quietly so that she wouldn't be shamed. Joseph thought Mary had been sexually mischievous. Right? But what did the angel say? Joseph, do not do it. Mary hadn't sinned. God's Spirit has conceived a child in her womb. I want to tell you, you cannot be a Christian this morning unless you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. The Pharisees' unbelief of Him centered around calling into question His deity and they called into question his deity by questioning his conception. How did you come about, Jesus? Who is your daddy anyway? Some of you wrestle with this. And let me just say to you, you'll never reason it out. It makes no logical sense. It's not humanly possible to have a child without sexual intercourse. But it, all things are possible in God's realm. And the Bible clearly tells us and foreshadowed it for us in Isaiah that the Christ would be born of a virgin, not just a young woman, but an absolute, pure, undefiled woman. She had never been sexual with any man in her life. And God's Spirit dwelled and brought into her womb a conceived boy. And His name is Jesus. Don't, don't uh, give them any credit here. They're not on the high end asking, you know, tell us who your daddy is. That might lend authority to what you're saying. No, they're doubting him. And what I'm telling you is you cannot doubt the deity of Christ and call yourself a Christian. He is not a mere man. He was not born the way we were born. He is not like us in that way. He is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. Jesus Christ. Jesus assures them that they not only don't know Him, but they don't know His Father either. Look what He says in verse 19b. You know neither Me nor My Father. If you knew Me, you would know My Father also. Right off the bat, we see in His answer that He's saying, you called into question My deity. And I'm telling you, you don't know God. Now, let's stop and think about this. It will be very important to you in your life. Some of you have been in church all of your life. And if I polled you right now, I would be willing to believe that if we polled this whole audience, counted it and tabulated it, everybody would say they believed in God in this room. Everybody. Everybody in this room would say, we believe in Jesus. But there are lost men and women in this room just like the Pharisees. 
You know of him, but you have no relationship with him. What Jesus is saying is not, you don't know who God is. As if they didn't intellectually know who God is. He's saying, you have no relationship with my Father, and you have no relationship with me. How did I arrive at that conclusion? They know who Jesus is. Look what he said. Look in the text. Look down at verse 19. You know neither me nor my Father. How can he say they don't know him? If you'd have polled the audience, they would have all said, that's Jesus of Nazareth, everybody. Right? It's the same thing a lot of you would say. Oh, yeah, I know Jesus. I'm good. I'm in. I got that stamp. I'm I'm saved. I believe. I know. This word believe means more than I know. This word believe means I am in relationship with this Father. I'm in relationship with this Jesus. He says, you don't have a relationship with me, and you don't have a relationship with my Father. There's a lot of lost people in the visible church. A lot of them. In America, unfortunately, our roles are filled with lost people. Do you know that the largest denomination in our nation, over 42,000 congregations, the Southern Baptists, are having a debate right now as we speak about Regenerate church membership. You know what the debate's over? Whether you have to be a believer to be a member of the local church. That's really what it comes down to. Should we require an honest, truthful examination of our people before we join them in our church? I would say that's the only way to do it. In our day, it's no different than in their day. They were Pharisees. They were religious leaders. They were a part of God's people, but they didn't know God or Jesus. In our day, it's no different in the church. They've walked the aisle. They've shook a hand. They've said a prayer. They've been dunked in some water. They've signed a card, but they don't know Jesus. They have no relationship with Him. There's so much stress and so much concern on building the role of the church when our stress and our concern should be, do you know Jesus or not? That should be our concern. That was Christ's concern. And that's the question He put to them, or that's the words He put to them is in answer of their question is, look, don't ask me about my Father. You wouldn't know Him if you saw Him because you're looking at Him and you don't know Him. Right? Because in John 12, He's going to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They had no relationship with the Father. And Jesus is assuring them of that. It's possible to know Jesus without being saved by Him. In fact, there will be many in that day who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not teach in Your name? Did we not prophesy in Your name? Did we not heal in Your name? And He'll say, depart from Me because I do not know who You are. When it comes down to it, it matters a lot more whether Christ knows you than whether you think you know Him. What I'm looking for when I stand in front of Christ is not, hey, I know that guy. Everybody's going to know Jesus on that day. Lost and saved are going to know Him. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And when He sits on that throne that day, everyone will know Him, but He won't know everybody there in the way I'm talking about in relationship. I'd much rather tell you you can't join this church because I'm not sure you are a believer than to let you join this church and coddle you into hell and have your blood on my hands 
And Jesus wouldn't coddle the Pharisees either. He just bluntly tells them, you're not Christians. Basically, you don't know me and you don't know my Father. You should not question the deity of Christ. You should not call into question the nature of Christ's death. Look what he says here in the text. In verse 21, so he said, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And the Jews say, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. Jesus is foretelling his death, resurrection, and ascension right here. I'm going away and you're going to try to find me. And you're going to die in your sin because you can't come where I'm going. Now, what's he saying? Could they not go to Calvary? Sure they could. Could they not go to his crucifixion and see it? Absolutely. Most of them did. They stood and mocked and jeered him while he was dying. They could, have went, they could go to the empty grave. And many of them did. They knew that the, the disciples claimed he had raised up and that he had ascended to heaven. They knew that. What they're calling into question here is the method and the means of his death. They're calling it, what was his purpose in dying? They're accusing him of suicide. That's what they're accusing him of here. Is he saying that he's going to commit suicide? Is that what he's saying? Now, these men are plotting to kill him, and yet they're asking the question, is he going to kill himself? You know? They've missed it absolutely, haven't they? And some of you have missed it about the crucifixion also. The crucifixion of Christ, in some ways, has been lessened in our day in the church, not heightened. We talk of it as if it's just another historical fact, something else that just occurred. I want to tell you, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the center point of all history. That event, that lone event changed the destiny of God's people. And it was a horrific event at the same time being beautiful. May I just talk to you about the crucifixion of Christ? Jesus Christ was fully crucified in public. He was beaten. The Bible tells us and describes for us, for anyone who's willing to read it, a horrific beating. The cat of nine tails was used, administered, 39 lashes. Because at 41 or 42, you died. He was beaten. They gave 40 lashes as a sentence and took one just in case they missed the count. They didn't want to kill him. They wanted to put him on the edge of death. They stripped him of his clothes. They tied him to that post and they beat him. Beyond recognition, the Bible says, they plucked his beard. They spit in his face. They smacked him with a cane across the head. They crammed a crown of thorns mocking him on his head. And those thorns pierced into his brow. And blood freely ran down the face of God. After they had cowardly convicted him of no crime but yet sentenced him to death, they forced him to carry his crossbar. He carried his crossbar as far as he physically could and he collapsed under the weight of that beating and of the blood loss 
and of the emotional turmoil he had experienced. And they got someone to carry it the rest of the way. And when they got to the, crawl, to, the, to the place of crucifixion, the place of the skull, outside of Jerusalem, on the hillside, they laid him against that wood. Splinters piercing his torn flesh. And they nailed him to the cross. The most sensitive place in, in the hand is just below the hand in the wrist. It's where the nerves come together. And they pierced it with iron. And they pierced his feet. And it was intended to make him suffer. And they lifted him up. And they crammed that cross down into a hole. And all of his weight hung against those nails. The crucifixion is bloody. And it is despicable from a human standpoint. Often in the pictures it's related that he was hung up high. I tend to believe from the study I've done that he actually, and as I looked at it again this week, after hearing a message preached on it, I researched it. Actually, archaeologists say most men were crucified at eye level so that their accusers might stand and look them in the eyes while they died and mock them. And so they stood around and wagged their tongues, the Bible said. They, they mocked and ridiculed him even as he was dying. They had won their victory, but not enough. They wanted to make him suffer. And they spit on him and they hurled insults at him. And what was his response from the cross? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus said, I'm going to a place that you can't go. Because you're going to die in your sins. They were at the crucifixion. But they are not in heaven. Because as he laid and died on that cross. In excruciating pain. And they mocked and jeered him. God was winning a victory. Over sin and death. For everyone who believed. And because they would not believe in him. They have no victory. Jesus died, was put in the tomb for three days. It's a very well-known tomb. It was the tomb of a rich man, and it was deeded to him at his death. He was buried there, wrapped in about a hundred pounds of dressing. Top of head to bottom of feet, a hundred pounds of oil and spices and wrap. And he stayed in there not one day, not two days, he stayed in there three days. And then by the power of God, he was resurrected from the dead. No one set him loose. He simply came out of those grave clothes. And he walked out of that tomb, winning the power over death and sin. And the Pharisees couldn't go there. They did not go there at their death. They were consumed by death and consumed by sin, and now they are in hell. Jesus said, I'm going somewhere that you cannot go. You'll seek me, but you will not find me, and you'll die in your sins. Jesus is saying, you're headed to hell. And some of you within the sound of my voice are headed there too. You're headed there because you've rejected Jesus Christ. You've rejected His deity. You've rejected His sacrifice. You've rejected the goodness of God. And at your death, you will suffer hell and separation forever. 
But some of you who are in that state right now, as I say those words, you want to cry out right now. God, don't let it be that way for me. And it doesn't have to be that way. Listen to this. Because Christ can and does set people free from their sin. There is hope in that death, in that burial, and in that resurrection. And He patterned that resurrection for us and then He was ascended back up to the throne in heaven. The fact is, without Christ, you can't go there. But with Him, you will go there. We're guaranteed that. We will be with Him. And we will be like Him. Jesus tells them about His death, His resurrection, His ascension. You say, how did you get all that out of that answer? I'm going away and you will seek Me and you will die in your sin. And where I'm going, you cannot come. Because in the text, and we're going to get there, He says in verse 28, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, it's in reference to this going away, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Jesus says, When you have lifted me up the Son of Man, that phrase is used three times in the text of John. In John 3.15 and 14, He says, I will be lifted up and all who come to me will be saved. Like Moses lifted the serpent up in the wilderness, so I will be lifted up. In John 12, he says, I will be lifted up. And all who believe in me will be saved. And here he says, when I'm lifted up, you'll know that I'm the Son of Man. You'll know that I'm God. And so we have this foreshadowing of his death, his burial, his resurrection. The Pharisees mock him as a madman. They accuse him As I said, they accuse him of suicide. Will he kill himself? This is the darkest place that a Jew could be. As a matter of fact, Josephus tells us that the darkest pit of hell is reserved for those who commit suicide. So the Pharisees are saying, not only is he not God, he's the worst of all men. He's going to kill himself. They missed it. They totally missed it. But I will say this in their defense. They got it half right. Jesus did kill himself. He said as much. Unless I laid down my life, no one could take it from me. I lay down my life and I'll take it up again. Peter's uh, words at the, at, at, or Luke's words about Peter's message of the crucifixion are very clear. Jesus was delivered up by the preordained and foreplanned, sovereign will of God. And you killed Him by lawless hands. They got it half right. Jesus did willingly give up His life. You see, He wasn't forced to die for you. He willingly died for you. He took your sin when you couldn't save yourself. He took your sin and died and paid your price. And He gave gave you His righteousness that you might live with Him for eternity. They got it half right. He does give up His own life. And they also murdered Him. These Pharisees, in their unbelief, hardened unbelief, murdered Him. Jesus distinguishes Himself here. After they mock Him in this will He kill Himself answer, He distinguishes Himself. Look what He says. Verse 23, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. That word cosmos here means evil. 
the evil nature of this world. I'm not of this world. The sinfulness of this world, the darkness of this world. I'm not of this world. I'm from above and you're from below. I'm sinless. You are sinful. I'm from heaven. You're from this sinful world. He distinguishes. He separates himself from them. I told you that I would, that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Christ is the only way you can escape your sin. Unless you believe in him, you will die in your sin. Finally, you should know, not live in hardened unbelief. I don't want you to live in unbelief. Christ doesn't want you to live in unbelief. This question in verse 25 is a question of hardened unbelief. Who are you? Their their unbelief has reached the pinnacle, really. They have denied Him. They've denied His deity. They've denied His sacrificial death. They've denied Christ and God completely. And now they, they dare... They're infuriated by his answer, saying they'll die in sin. They're infuriated. Who are you? Basically, you can hear the tone of their question. Who are you to say we're sinners? Who are you to say we'll die in our sin? Who do you think you are, Jesus, to talk to us this way? And some of you have answered that way to him even this morning. As you've heard the gospel preached, as you've heard the truth of Christ's sacrifice, as you've heard the offer of salvation, to believe in Him, to escape your sins, you have said, not only will I not believe in Him, but I totally reject that guy. I reject that way of salvation. I'll be my own God. I'll save myself. I'm a pretty good fellow. I think He'll merit me into heaven. You've rejected Him. And I want to warn you, that's hard and unbelief. And I want to tell you, Jesus doesn't in any way show mercy to these men. Look what He says. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. He's saying, I sit in judgment over you and your unbelief. And that's the same idea that was presented in John 3. You're already judged because you're in unbelief. Jesus doesn't, in a sense, have to judge you, he sits over you in judgment. He's witnessing against you. Jesus is God. And He will judge unbelief. Jesus clearly teaches His sacrificial death and resurrection again. When I am lifted up, He says. When I am lifted up. Then you will know that I am He. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. The Father hadn't left me, for I do everything that pleases Him. Jesus clearly teaches His sacrificial death and resurrection, and He calls you to believe in Him. He calls on you to believe in Him. And let me end by talking about that belief and what that belief must center on. I just boil down the Christian faith to you in, in very simple terms. You cannot be saved unless you believe in Jesus Christ, not as a historical figure, but as God. You must believe in His virgin birth. You must believe that He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He is God in the flesh.
That is non-compromisable. If you call yourself a Christian and deny that, you are not a Christian. You know, not only have to believe that, you have to believe he was sinless, that he lived a perfect life, that he was perfectly righteous in every regard towards the law. He said, I've come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. You cannot believe that then that he became sinless, but rather that he was always sinless. It means he was always in obedience to his heavenly Father. If you believe Jesus committed any sin, no matter how small you think it was or how big you think it was, you cannot be a Christian because his sacrifice cannot be for you. It must be for his own sin. So he must be God in the flesh. He must be sinless. Third, he must have died as a substitutionary, penal sacrifice. An atoning sacrifice. All of those are key. Let me explain them to you. First of all, substitutionary. That means you have to believe He didn't die for Himself. He died for you. If you don't believe He died for you, you cannot be saved. Secondly, penal. In other words, God was wrathful against sin. There was a penalty to be paid. He wasn't just dying as an example of some kind some moral example, he died for a real thing. And that is the wrath of God was laid on him. He died in your place. He died under the wrath of God. And he atoned for all who believe in him. Now, what does that atonement mean? That is a real application of the sacrifice of Christ to individuals. Nobody believes Christ died for everybody. Nobody believes that. If we believed that, everybody would be saved. And we don't believe everybody's saved. And what I'm telling you from the Old to the New Testament through and through, the sacrifice that was given as a substitution, just ask yourself as you read the Scripture, how can you substitute in general? You have to substitute for someone. Jesus had to substitute for somebody. Not just in general. He paid the price that you deserve to pay. How could He pay you? Just generally pay price. He had to pay your price that you owed if you're going to be set free and God is satisfied for you. How can you atone for everybody? As I said, everybody would be saved. No, everybody's not saved. So He atoned for those who He substituted for, who He paid the penalty for. He atoned for us. He made it right. He appeased God. God is now pleased with us because of Him. He's an atonement for us. Okay, why do I stress all of those things? Because there are wolves and false teachers in the church today by the hundreds who are telling you that's not at all what Jesus did when He died. He's just an example to you. I'm going to tell you, they're not preaching the gospel. I'm not saying they're not preaching the gospel. The Bible says they're not preaching the gospel. And if you follow them, you will die in your sin. You've got to believe in Jesus as God. You've got to believe He was sinless. You must believe He died a substitutionary, penal, atoning, sacrificial death for you. You must believe He was resurrected. If He's in the grave, there is no Christianity. You must believe in the resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection of Christ is not true, then we are the most to be pitied among all men of the earth. You must believe in the resurrection. 
Not the possibility of a resurrection, not a spiritual resurrection, but a physical, bodily resurrection. If His body absorbed our sin, then His body will grant us a glorious new birth. A bodily resurrection. You have to believe those things in order to be a Christian. If you don't accept all of them, totally, you cannot be saved. I can't say that enough. There's no exception to it. God's not going to say, well, you got, you got most of it. You got three out of four. No. It's a hundred or nothing. You believe it all or you reject it all. It comes in total. And so if you're hearing this and you say, well, I believe most of that, but one of those things, I just don't believe in that, then I would say, go back and wrestle with salvation again. You're not saved, I don't think. Salvation comes through Christ alone. He is all that can deliver you from your sins. And you must believe these things I've told you about Him. You must not just believe it intellectually. What must you do? You must stake your eternity on it. You must stake your eternity on it. In other words, you say, if Jesus is in the way, there's no way. I'm not 90% in and 10% out. I'm 100% in or I'm 100% out. If I asked you today, if I said, Wendell, are you married to Janet? And you said, well, 90%. That'd be a false statement, Wendell. You either say you either married or you're not married. And I'm telling you, you're either married to Christ or you're not married to Christ. There's no in-betweens on that. Everybody in this room is either saved or lost. Everybody. And it comes down not to who you are, but who Christ is. Do you believe in Him? Do you accept Him? What I've told you about Him today, do you know Him? If not, please know Him. Please, by all means, know Him this morning. Cry from your heart to Him. Save me by the blood of Christ. If, there's no other, if, there's, if He's not the way, there's no other way. And say, I follow you. Abandon everything. What does salvation mean? It means I've abandoned it all for the sake of Christ. And so if there's one thing you would say, I'd take that over Christ, you're not a believer. Don't fool yourself. Believe in Him. He is the only way to be saved. Let's pray. Father, as we have thought about these things, our hearts now leave this place.